0: Okay, hello everybody. That was a great session, wasn't it? I'm just getting used to this microphone. I've never worn one of these before. It's strange. Okay. So, I'm going to be talking to you today about prayer ministry and psychology. And um, just to introduce myself, I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I'm currently working in private practice. Um, But I felt really led into clinical psychology. Um, I won't tell you the story. If you're interested, catch me later. But I really do feel that God led me into this field. And during my training, my doctoral training, I had the privilege of being able to do some doctoral research on the experiences of committed Christians who experienced psychological difficulties and looked at... The relationship that I found in the literature between committed Christians and psychological well being. And um, so I had a look at what, was, what were some of the themes in that link. And I also looked at on what basis these Christians searched for help for their difficulties and why they sometimes chose to go to people who are Christians and sometimes um, to people who weren't. Um, so as I say, now I'm, I'm in private practice. I have worked in the NHS. I've worked in the NHS for many years and also in the, private, uh, the public sector sorry, in New Zealand. One of the reasons I'm in private practice now is because I was interested in making psychological therapy available to Christians um, and from a Christian. And I'm interested in bringing more faith issues into my work with people. And I'm very much enjoying that freedom and um, the being, being able to see more Christians in my work. On the prayer ministry front, I have been involved in offering prayer ministry and also I've been on the receiving end. So I'd love to get an idea of who you are. Could I maybe have a show of hands of, of um, people who are here who are counsellors or trained therapists or psychologists? Okay, it's mattering. Church leaders and people involved in offering prayer ministry who don't fall into the above categories. Okay, so another mixture, is similar this morning. Um, so what is psychology? We'll just cover some of the basics here. Um, psychology is the scientific study of people. And um, so it is a, a scientific discipline that uses some similar methodologies as does physics, biology, chemistry, and so on. It draws on empirical research, that means observations and um, experiments, and as such, it is based on the Christian assumption of the orderliness of creation, so the idea that you can observe something and you can try and make sense of things through experiments and, and extrapolate to patterns and theories. However, it is slightly flawed, generally in psychology. Um, there's a, a flaw from a Christian perspective, and that, in that it makes the unfounded assumption, generally, that there isn't a God, nor that there is a God who can intervene and impact our daily lives. Then again, that could, accusation could also be directed at physics, chemistry. IT. What is a clinical psychologist, you might ask? Well, the key to the answer to that question is in the word clinic, clinical. Uh, it doesn't mean stiff and starchy. Clinic actually means to meet face-to-face. So this is where the, um, the study of psychology can inform personal interactions and dealing with people's difficulties drawing on the insights from psychology. I'm assuming, I'm just going to make the assumption here that we've all got a sense of what prayer ministry is and um, the kind that I'll have in mind as I'm talking is the kind that you might get at the end of a church service where you come up, are prayed for and the people praying for you are trying to be receptive to the Holy Spirit in guiding their praying and receptive to maybe some of the spiritual gifts, words of knowledge, um, pictures um, and so on. Okay, so just to give you an overview of what we're going to be covering today, Uh, we're going to look at some of the psychological aspects of prayer ministry, some of the limits and risks of prayer ministry, some of the limits and risks of psychological therapy for Christians and we're going to look at psychology and prayer ministry working together and then hopefully we'll have a bit of time at the end for some questions. So, what are some of the psychological aspects of prayer ministry? Um, Just to say, um, when I'm talking about prayer ministry today, I'm going to just assume we're talking about prayer ministry done well. There are a whole range of ways in which it can be done badly. It spans really the range of problems in human interacting, so we could be here all day if we were looking at any of those. So I'm just going to assume it's done well. And one of the things I'd like to highlight is just the interpersonal care that we experience in prayer ministry. Uh, Research has over and over again shown the significant impact on our well-being of social support. And... There's been a categorization of that into emotional support, practical support, and informational support. I would put the prayer ministry within more of the emotional support. So I'm talking about the experience of being attended to, being in the way of someone who's compassionate and spends a bit of time to understand you. Although I know that's not a massive focus of prayer ministry, the the understanding bit. The sense that you're not alone, that you've got some support. Someone's coming alongside you. And not only someone, as in a person, but also God. You're in the presence of God who's coming alongside you. In prayer ministry, you might be trying to pass over your, your difficulties to an omnipotent, omnibevolent God, benevolent, sorry, God, and in doing that, particularly in areas where you don't have that sense of control, not there isn't a possibility for control, ha- handing over such situations to God can be a stress reducer. Garnering the prayers of people who perhaps you might perceive in your state of difficulty might be more effective prayers than you are can make you feel like, well, at least I'm doing something. And also, in the experience of maybe feeling the Holy Spirit directly or hearing um, the prayers offering you words or pictures or, or, uh, or whatever, there might be a sense that, hey, God, God has spoken to me. God hasn't forgotten me. And all these things can give rise to hope. And hope is a key Um, to our well-being without hope we are on a uh, a trajectory downwards hope is actually or hopelessness rather has been found to be the most significant factor psychological factor associated with suicide so you can see where hopelessness might lead you and where hope can help us to motivate us to just keep hanging on in there pressing through I want to talk about emotion, the state of emotional openness that may well have an impact in how we experience prayer ministry and what's going on there. So when we go for prayer ministry, at least part of us has this idea that, you know, God maybe is good, we're going to him to receive. There's some sort of openness in, t- in, in having a receptive stance, And after all, God knows us inside out. There's no point in hiding anything. So maybe our defenses are slightly more dropped. So we may move into prayer ministry, which feels safe and where we feel more relaxed. We're with warm, loving people. We're in the presence of a warm, loving God. Or else we may find that actually we're quite nervous and aroused going for prayer ministry. Perhaps there's a lot of stuff going on around us. Maybe there's um, loud praise music in the background. We're pumped up on that. And and we're wondering what's going to happen. And so we're in a high arousal state. We're expectant. And so... All of these things place us in a state of being emotionally open. What, what do I mean by this? Well, just to bring in some neurobiology, um, the activity of the frontal lobes, which are about here somewhere, part of our brain. this is our brain's critical thinking facility. The activity of our frontal lobes are reduced in cases of in high arousal or low arousal. And I'm talking about sort of physiological arousal. And the reduced activity of the frontal lobes allows more ready access to the emotional memory system of the amygdala, another part of our brain. And at this point, in order to demonstrate, um, to give you a, a, a snippet of what that might look like, I've got a YouTube clip which hopefully we'll have up on this screen here we go this is actually um, a a brief bit of a demonstration of something called theophostic prayer ministry which um, I'm not advocating here I'm just using this clip to demonstrate a particular point so there's a, a demonstration of someone's amygdala being accessed to their emotional memory system and the way that that holds memories is as if you know, as you saw, you saw her upset. It was as if she was back there, right then. Um, it doesn't have a sense of time, if you like. So that pain and distress was reactivated, but because it was, it allowed transformation to occur. And that's my point, really, that if the emotional memory system is accessible, then that kind of emotional level transformation can occur. And if we just think about the Holy Spirit and how he often works in prayer ministry we find that he impacts our emotional systems and we find his transforming presence there I want to link this to psychological models there may even be more than two but there are two that I'm aware of that outline two types of knowing maybe we could have the slide back up We have the propositional or rational type of knowing versus the implicational or experiential type of knowing. You might want to think of it as head knowledge versus heart knowledge. It's the experiential or implicational knowledge or beliefs that really impact us, that are compelling, that affect how we live and act. So, you know, sometimes we can know up here God loves us, but we don't act out of that felt sense of it, there's an example. So enduring therapeutic change requires change in the experiential or implicational belief system. And so we can think about how that might happen in prayer ministry. Not only through dramatic experiences like that, where, where the voice of God is heard internally, some some kind of words internally are heard, or where you see um, maybe some physical reactions or strong sensory responses that would be if you can see the sea the down there, that would be sort of the direct accessing to the implicational or experiential knowledge system, there are other ways into it, um, one is through the rational system, so maybe reading your Bible, hearing words that are spoken over you, or hearing the words that have been prayed over you, those might be ways into affecting the implicational um, or experiential knowledge system. Another way in, uh, this is based on the psychological models, just to be clear, um, is learning directly from emotionally significant experiences. Included in that would be Constructive and significant relationships with other people. So think of how God can use our church settings if we engage in real, really meaningful, significant relationships and really build a, a, a true spiritual community, as Larry Crabb would call it. So. Basically, um, there are those emotional and cognitive systems involved in potentially in prayer ministry and and the Holy Spirit affecting change pretty effectively. But that's not always the case, is it? We don't always um, feel a strong sense of God or have, have a dramatic experience or have words spoken to us in prayer ministry. Um, Sadly, there is very little research on prayer, but um, the Reverend Franklin Lure decided quite a long time ago, it was 1959, he brought out a book called The Power of Prayer on Plants (laughs) and did some interesting experiments in which he planted seeds and had water prayed for or not prayed for and then delivered to these seeds and found that the ones that received the prayed for water Sprouted more, grew, grew um, taller. Um, I think the methodology there is—it's uh, hard to ascertain how sound it is. Um, I haven't been able to access the original uh, document, but it's uh, an interesting example of attempts to look at the power of prayer when it's not psychologically impactful. It's just—it's quite—it's at a distance in a way. Obviously the plants can't, uh, can't feel anything. There has been some um, work done also on the impact of prayer at a distance on cardiac patients who don't know that they're being prayed for. And again, there's some results that show that those who are prayed for uh, have better physical health outcomes. But um, that's the kind of study that needs to be replicated before we can know that there's a really robust um, evidence based to that. But of course as Christians we believe in, that prayer does make a difference, whether we feel it or not. So let's go all go and get prayer ministry and be healed, shall we? <laughs> well yes, but no. Um, I guess having heard some things that have been said to us in um, by Joanna and other of the keynote speakers, um, I'm going to be being a little bit repetitive here what others have said but I think one of the dangers if we could have the um, risks of prayer ministry slide up one of the dangers of prayer ministry is if there's a culture around it in which it's seen to be the only way um, and that other legitimate and useful sources of help are seen as um, secondary or, or wrong even so that the right help isn't sought I think also there's a problem if there's a culture of quick-fix mentality, where instant healing is the sole focus. Often, as we've heard, facing our pain and anxiety and taking the time and effort to know what's going on and learn from this are vital and enriching processes and take us to maturity. Sometimes, in order to mature, we need to learn the hard way. We need to learn to master our emotions. We need to be able to apply discipline and effort. We need to endure difficult feelings and experiences and, um, and shed that sense that we're entitled not to. I love the way the Living Bible translates James 1, verses 3 and 4. When the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow, and don't try to squirm out of your problems. (laughs) For when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you'll be ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. I recently heard a Christian psychiatrist talk, and he referred to his depression. And it was really nice the way he referred to it, not as a breakdown, but as a breakthrough. He discovered new places of understanding as he went through his depression, and similar to his the story that he is told, it can highlight where we place our worth or identity, or what we demand as our condition for happiness, only to find that these things are unreliable. And so, when these things fail us, and we collapse into depression, we realise that we've misplaced our basis for worth and identity. So, for example, someone whose worth and identity is is based on a performance or success in their career, and then it, it disappears from beneath them. That could be devastating for someone who's placed their worth and identity on that. It can be a slow process, though, then, to extract ourselves from these bases of identity or worth and establish these, hopefully, instead, in who we are in Jesus. So in going through difficulties, God may be trying to draw us closer to him and the life and joy he wants us to experience in intimacy with him. And we may miss that wonderful thing if the only thing we're after is instant healing. Okay, let's move on to the limits and risks of psychological therapy for Christians. The most frequent thing that I'm approached and asked about in my church because I'm a psychologist is I want to see a counsellor or a therapist they must, I want them to be a Christian they must be a Christian what do you suggest? All of them want to see Christians. Why are they concerned about that? Well, perhaps a few ideas maybe they're worried that their faith will be ignored or inadequately understood or it would be just too much of an effort to have to do all that explaining or even worse undermined maybe there's a concern about opening themselves up to influences that aren't in line with God, aren't in line with Jesus and after all this person has got these powerfully influencing techniques and methods that can change my beliefs and change my emotions ooh I've got to be careful so, and maybe there's a spiritual aspect of all, all this opening up, so there's a sense of it not being quite safe. Are these fears warranted? Well, it's actually quite a complex area. And a couple of studies have been done that help us to untangle some of these issues. Um, I've quoted Cutland, 2000, and. Smiley Cutland is actually me, that's my pre marriage name. And um, Dr. Tom Smiley is someone who's done some good, really useful research in this area. He studied, he did a survey of NHS psychologists in the south of, southwest of England and asked them about their religiosity or faith and how they regard or approach. Clients' faith or religious issues when they come up in therapy or presented in therapy, and a range of other questions. What he found was that clinical psychologists, non religious and religious, um, were actually quite aware of the importance of spiritual and faith issues for their clients, but they felt really inadequately equipped to deal with them. The religious psychologists that were interviewed felt a little bit more equipped through their personal experience, but they won't have received training in how to help people, and just as as per their uh, non religious counterparts is not, well, until lately, has not been a part of clinical psychology training in this country. And it's a real shame because there are, as we will see, um, psychological methods and even therapies that have been designed with Christians in mind and shown to be effective. The religious psychologists in the NHS also expressed some caution about how much they dealt with faith or spiritual issues in therapy due to um, being concerned about the ethical boundaries of their role and also um, I think they'd probably be concerned about the misuse of power. I mean after all this is an NHS psychology setting people come have come to a psychologist supposedly for psychological input so those are some of the issues that are around for them. However, the, um, the bit of research that I was vaguely alluding to back then, on um, or has been done on various specifically Christian therapies, and one study was undertaken in which there were three types of intervention. One was pastoral input, one was standard cognitive behavioural therapy, and one was a Christian cognitive behavioural therapy, with particular co- Christian components in it. In each of these three groups, there were therapists delivering these interventions who were both Christian and then some who were non-religious. Christian, non-religious. Christian, non-religious. And the striking finding is that the best outcomes were obtained by the non-Christian therapists who were delivering Christian CBT to Christian clients. Hmm, what's going on there? <laughs> really intriguing finding. And um, the authors concluded, well, maybe it's the respectful en- engagement with faith that's, that's the most important thing here. Maybe there actually can be benefits as a Christian of being seen by a non-Christian. One um, uh, lecturer in a theological seminary in the States was, was chatting to me a while back about how she, a very committed Christian, had been to see a Jewish um, therapist and found that really helpful in the way that the, this therapist didn't quite um, share her Christian language and so, um, Cherith, her name was, was forced to unpack. The concepts that she just readily used, and it brought lots of new insights and sort of questioning that opened up new paths for her quite helpfully there are, uh, there can also of course be benefits of seeing a Christian therapist if you 're a Christian, particularly if you 're just going to feel safer um, by doing so, or you 've got particular issues that do feel specifically faith related. Um, there can be a range of reasons why you might want to see uh, a Christian therapist. On the other hand, maybe, I would advocate this, there are times when it really doesn't matter. Um, Somebody in this morning's session wanted to tell us that she sees a psychiatrist and a psychologist, neither of them are Christians, and they're great. And so I think it depends a lot on whether the person is equipped adequately with the skills and knowledge that most suit your needs um, if you're the person seeking it. And I think one of my concerns is this this theme of Christians just assuming that they must see a Christian. And because there are very few Christian psychologists around, there are quite a few Christian counsellors around, sometimes I wonder if they're seeing the right person. And I I really respect the work of Christian counsellors highly. But I think we have to acknowledge that there is a difference. They might be better in certain areas. Psychologists are more equipped in other areas. So um, it is a bit of a concern, I think, at times. maybe? So, let's have a look now at psychology and ministry working together. I want to tell you about a study that Parker and St. John did over 10 years um, to give you a flavour of what might be possible. Unfortunately, I don't know the details of this study, but the, the results are quite striking. So, one group of people, and these people in this study were Di- struggling with a range of difficulties, depression, anxiety difficulties, marital difficulties, some physical health difficulties. Some, a third of them were assigned to a random prayer group. And they prayed on their own every night without anyone else bringing psychological insights to them. The next group received psychotherapy that had no mention of spirituality or religion as part of it. And the third group, called the prayer therapy group, uh, received instructions on positive praying, and also they received psychological guidance. So I think it's probably better named as prayer and therapy. Next slide, please. So as I say, the results are quite striking. The random prayer group, in the random prayer group, the average results were that there was no progress for those people, or if anything, they went backwards. For those who saw a psychotherapist, received psychotherapy, there was 65% improvement, and for those receiving prayer therapy, a 72% improvement. Hmm, gotta wonder what's going on there, haven't you? And of course, the authors concluded well, maybe something wasn't quite working right in the random prayer group. <laughs> So I guess it's a way into me talking about maybe some of the insights that psychology or psychological therapy can add that can make a real difference to people and perhaps just can make a real difference in the way you pray for people. I want to give you a few tasters of the sorts of things that I'm thinking of. Great, thank you. So if we look at worry... We're told not to worry, right? People have problems. General anxiety disorder is is kind of the label of the disorder, which is characterized specifically by uncontrollable, unwanted worry. Well, when I was training, there was a lot of perplexity about this, and um, it was a difficult thing to treat well. But um, some research has been undertaken. In fact, I was kind of involved in a little tiny weenie bit of it. But um, basically what's come out of research um, and psychological, psychologists really scratching their head and thinking is that key to the maintenance of worry or the breaking of that is people's beliefs about worry, what we call metacognitive beliefs. If they believe that it's uncontrollable, they're more likely to be stuck with it. If but if they believe, even though they don't want it, there's part of them in there that thinks, "Well, actually, it's really it's helping me to problem solve here, or it's helpful because it helps me feel I'm, I'm in more control." Then that belief can sustain the worry. So if you think about that insight, you might think slightly differently when you next pray for somebody who's got that as an issue. Let's look at intrusive thoughts. I actually got an email a few months ago from a pastor who was trying to work with some distressed lady who who kept getting intrusive, unwanted thoughts of harming others. This lovely woman who was plagued by these um, nasty, nasty thoughts. Well, of course she was told, take your thoughts captive, you know, let's deal with this. But what psychology can bring as an insight on this is that the more the distressed you are about having thoughts, the more likely you are to have them. So, in other words, being given the message, you, must, this is, you mustn't keep having these thoughts. They're evil, they're bad, they're terrible. You must take them to ca- that captive. Actually, just increases the emotion that goes with those thoughts and then, yep, you can be sure they're going to come back and then back and back again. Not a great approach. So there could be a different meaning to maybe to the verse of taking the thoughts captive. Maybe we can think of that differently. Other thoughts. Um, there has been a fair bit of work looking at the process of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a process, and how it can be really essential to access emotional pain and possibly anger to properly kind of work through the stages of forgiveness. How about people with panic attacks, panic disorder. Or maybe understanding that scanning for and misinterpreting bodily sensations is a key factor in maintaining the panic cycle. Also understanding that panic is the emotion of separation distress could put a new angle on the way that we approach the area of panic and people that we see. So there's a few snippets of insight, and there are more. Okay, So I'll have a look at, what about God in psychological therapy? I have to say, it's difficult for me, being in church, where psychology is so often viewed with suspicion. It's seen as self-reliance rather than dependence on God. Or it's all about Freud and sex. Or if the psychologist has displaced the pastor in society, and of course that's frowned upon. So it's kind of my experience is that it's often something that's felt that it should be avoided. And so for me, in my experience um, in church, it can just be like it doesn't really exist. It's also difficult being a Christian in psychology and knowing the powerful impact that God can have on people's lives that's pretty much completely blanked by psychology, as if God doesn't exist. But it's really exciting when the power of both worlds so... maybe you want to think about this as a general and specific revelation, come together. And actually, I'm quite excited about the increasing openness of one to the other, the church to psychology, and maybe psychology a bit more to spirituality. So as I was alluding to earlier, on clinical psychology courses, there are now, certainly in some around the south of England, that are now actually wheeling people like me in to talk about dealing with spiritual or religious issues in psychological therapy. And the, the amount of research that's coming out from psychologists, mainly in the States still, looking at um, psychological and religious issues pertaining to mental health um, is increasing. Look at how quickly this conference filled up. There's something of a hunger amongst Christians as well for perhaps more to inform them about emotional health. Books like um, those written by psychologists Cloud and Townsend are being snapped up, and we're seeing a kind of proliferation of courses. here, there's one on um, depression, overcoming depression. There's another that I'm aware of on eating disorders. There's living waters, cleansing streams, the aphostic ministry. Uh, Neil Anderson's, I think it's freedom in Christ, and so on and so forth. There's obviously an engagement with things psychological. But I guess I would love to see more of the riches that psychology has to offer Imported into those things, maybe the insights, the the thinking, the maybe the research skills that can be brought, so that some of these programs could be properly evaluated, and um, where they're maybe well, where they're doing great work and I've I've known a number of people who've been through these courses and hugely benefited that we might have some way of demonstrating that to the world of psychology and the kind of language that it understands of research and statistics on the other hand you know it might show up areas of weakness that could bear further thought to increase our ability to care really well for the people who are seeking help through these Christian programs and I've got other kind of visions and ideas of, of how these things could work together more. But I think there's, there is definitely more to harness in bringing these worlds together. So I'm going to end um, by just telling you about one client that I've been seeing that demonstrates some of this fusing together of faith and into my work as a clinical psychologist. Um, just to reassure you, if you're concerned about the individual, I've changed significant details about them so that they're not recognizable. And I'll just put out there that I'm not going to be talking extensively about the psychological f- theories and frameworks that I've brought to bear on my work. It's been quite complex work, and so I've actually drawn on quite a few different ways of thinking. You might want to think, ask yourself as I'm telling you about this is this the kind of person who would have naturally gone to the front of church for prayer ministry? And then we'll have a bit of time for questions. Is it quarter to that I need to finish? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. So this client, let's call her Catherine. She's been a Christian for many years. She had uber strict parents. And when she finally went to university, she let her hair down a bit and she slept around a bit. She got drunk. Although she did feel a bit uncomfortable doing these things, being aware of the gaze of God, um, disapproving of her um, activities as she was partly enjoying them. But she kind of blanked him through this and kept going, just following her impulses, her natural desires, being spontaneous. Then she got befriended by a Christian who drew her back to God. And um, in in quite a kind, loving way, it sounds... And eventually Catherine committed her life back to God. But it was then that her obsessions, which were never that prominent, became strong. She started monitoring everything she did, thought, said, checking over these to make sure she hadn't done or said something that wasn't absolutely true or or right she would sometimes have to go over her thoughts and actions mentally, replaying them to check. Also, that she could pray for forgiveness if she could possibly have done something that, would have been, that could have been dumped in the sin category. So, of course, this disrupted her ability to concentrate. And it disrupted her ability to relate freely and authentically with people. Particularly with people, she became anxious because in an interaction, you, in order not to look stupid or weird, you have to kind of engage, don't you, and be responsive and say the right thing in response. And that would cause her a lot of anxiety because it would inhibit her ability to do this mental processing, checking, asking for forgiveness. And so actually she develops um, some slightly panicky symptoms. So some of the underpinning themes here were an idea that if she were spontaneously herself, just led by her natural impulses, she would inevitably sin. And that this would risk her salvation, which was dependent on a clean slate with God at all times, kind of with a concept of God who was ready to pounce on her sin. So she needed to make sure she was on top of asking for forgiveness for anything that she did. So righteousness was top. And also there was a sense as well that maybe other people would misjudge her, misunderstand her and pounce on her. So she invested a lot in, in making sure she presented herself um, in an in a, um, acceptable and attractive way. Again, that inhibited authenticity in her relationships. <clears throat> In my work with her, it took a long time to establish a trusting relationship with her. It was as if she always anticipated that I would misunderstand her and put her in the wrong category and not get her quite right. And whenever I did try to show her my understanding, it just wouldn't be quite right. I wouldn't quite be getting it on the mark. It was... It was irritating, I think, for both of us. And um, there was a time of sort of where it sens- it had, there was a sense of us fighting each other. Me trying to convince her, I'm on your team, I can help you, I, uh, we can make sense of this together. And her kind of objecting to my suggestions and not wanting to be pigeonholed. But we did successfully get past that. And I now actually have a really awesome relationship with her in which I've I got quite a lot of freedom to be direct. We, can, we joke. And, and there's a real receptivity and rapport in our work together. It really feels like we're working as a team. And so in the midst of that, we have worked to reestablish the, the notion that she mentally, up here in her propositional knowing, um, of grace grace over works and the law in her life so I've got her reading and listening to books on grace and also I um, pointed her to sermons on the father heart of God that seem to capture some of that I've appeals to the relational nature of God that values most his relationship with her that's what the whole righteousness thing is about altogether isn't it it's about having a clear um, path for relationship with God I got her to imagine herself as a mother with a daughter who was so concerned about doing the right thing and was continually caught up in asking for forgiveness that, that she as a mother couldn't just enjoy her and be with her. She got the point. I also oriented her to the love of God for her through speaking words directly to her that I felt were from the Lord and that had some kind of references to Scripture imbued in them. So there was a sort of greater receptivity, I think, because it's like, okay, this does sound biblical. I can, I can take this on board. Um, that so that I was speaking directly words that affirmed who she was in God's sight. Not that he saw her as the latest sin overlaid in technicolor over who she was. Uh, we once sat and we prayed for God's direction for a session. I don't normally do this, but I just just felt, um, for various reasons, it seemed I won't go into the reasons. But anyway, we did. Um, <laughs> I felt um, on just stopping and, and trying to tune into God. I felt to ask her to picture god and her in a mental image and the image that she came up with was one of a fair bit of distance between her and god so i asked her to transform this image particularly the one of jesus in this picture to embody the warm loving uh, accepting person of jesus that she knows and knew him to be intellectually she did this, and she felt a closeness to God that touched her in a way she hadn't felt for a long time. Do you notice the implicational knowing that I was tapping into, the more sensory, visual parts of thinking that, that I was using to transform the propositional knowledge of, of Jesus' acceptance of her into more of a sensory experience? She went away from that session really feeling like she'd, she'd encountered God. And so on, Um, and uh, I mean, I could. I've done a lot of work with this woman. I could say lots more, but I'll just also say that um, I've also challenged her that maybe she's taking the place of the Holy Spirit, where it's His job to be the one to convict her of sin, not hers. She can rest and know that if something she needs to. To deal with before the Lord, He will do that. And we are finally making progress. Um, just in the last really couple of weeks, maybe months, she's ready in a way that she never was previously to do the um, work of exposure and response prevention, which is a standard cognitive behavioral therapy technique for working with obsessive compulsive disorder that we just haven't been able to do up until now because it would have been too risky for her. This involves her experiencing the urge to ask for forgiveness and then tolerating the diff- difficult emotions of not and the worry that she's, she's now unacceptable before God. But she's actually done really, really well having embraced the notions behind this new way of being. And so yeah, the last that I heard, she was just slipping up occasionally into asking for forgiveness, whereas previously it would have been tens of times a day. That's my my case. We've got about seven or eight minutes now for questions. So. I have
1: one question. Sorry for my English. It's I'm uh, um, uh, one year and a half in England, so. Please forgive me. I would like to ask you, uh, is it something uh, wrong, that people, who, uh, like something wrong uh, that people who are going to the church would like to be accepted? Is something wrong that people who are going to the church would like to be loved? Is something wrong that people who are going to the church uh, looking for uh, Jesus, or maybe they have found Jesus, and uh, hearing from the uh, top of church that they are uh, completely sinner, and they are rejected, and they are ac- accused. Is, uh, I don't... Uh, I re- maybe because of my English, I haven't understood oh, what did you mean.
0: What did I mean, or what? Or somebody from the front of a church. Well, I, I mean, I'm, of course, of course, we sh- as a church should offer acceptance, grace, love. Um, we're meant to embody Jesus, and I mean, the clearest demonstration he made of his love was dying for us. I think there's no question about the fact that we should embody those things. Um, the idea of sin, I, th- I. I don't know how much this is a pet theory, but I think it's not too theologically inconsistent, is the idea that sin is actually us moving away from God and turning our back on God. And where does that lead us? Well, if if moving towards Jesus leads us towards life, then this leads us towards death. So it's actually a gracious thing to point somebody around towards the life giver. So there are ways of talking about sin and the need for repentance and turning around that hold God up as the, the loving person that he is. So
1: the Catherine, which you, uh, reminded, uh, which you uh, were so nice, uh, reminded uh, going to the church and looking for life, uh, were doing wrong, and because of, uh, uh, I don't know, behavior, accusation behavior, I understood like that, uh, just turn up uh, on the... Um, heal uh, and
0: going uh, out. Yes. I'm not sure if I've got you completely, but I but I think that I think that actually the church that he he was in probably did offer uh, grace-filled sermons. But um, I think the may I don't know for sure because I haven't been to that church. But um, from what he said, I think there have been. And but his psychological filter. Wasn't able to receive those messages on that important emotional level because of perhaps more the impact of his parents on his life being these very strict people who implicitly gave him the message you can't be trusted to do right, you have to be constantly kept under control, we have to put in major disciplinary structures around you because, you know, and it just reinforced that idea that fueled the rest of his problems. I think there be another question. Thank you. Thank you for that. The great thing about coming to conferences is that it does tend to shift one's thinking a good deal. Hmm. Um, I, I am, by, by nature and background, the counsellor who is happy with prayer and occasionally doing prayer ministry. I wonder how many churches regard the two as really quite disparate, that we rely on the Holy Spirit in terms of both brief prayer at the end of a service and and ongoing prayer ministry for the people who seem to need it, based much more on Holy Spirit. Now I'm wondering whether, in fact, we should either have counselors who um, should be trained in prayer ministry or whether it's the prayer ministry team that need to get some basic psychological uh, training Um, so So basically I've confused you you can hear the reaction in the audience wouldn't it be great if everyone was equipped in all these ways and um, and even more than that that not just the counsellors or the people on the prime ministry team but everybody in the church was versed in maybe just some basic psychological principles or some understandings I've, I've got perhaps quite an idealised Idea of how a church could become a, a quite a healing community if we took more time to relate authentically and to understand pe- each other deeply, and that that could impact the way that we relate to people. And actually, if we could put up the last slide that kind of captures a bit of my thinking around this, it's basically a verse from here we go, verse from Philippians, which is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight okay and this is a kind of knowledge some knowledge comes from direct revelation specific revelation some for general from general revelation from study from observing the way that solomon observed the trees and the animals we observe human beings we learn from that and so i think if we could all get a better understanding but also in, all invest more in relationships that are Holy Spirit infused so that the Holy Spirit wasn't relegated to prayer ministry time, the Holy Spirit was what we lived in and acted out of and, and loved um, out of um, okay, maybe one more brief question Or question with a brief answer. (laughs) Listening to what you were saying about your client, I just wondered if she knew that when she was doing all that stuff at university, that God loved her just the same as when she wasn't doing it. Because that, to me, seemed quite something that struck me when you were talking. And also, I wondered whether, like in her superego, if she'd got God and her parents all mixed up and couldn't divide... The two so that's and here's a quick answer first of all i think absolutely uh, and i think she probably would still have stated propositionally god loves me but she didn't experience that as a real truth that she lived out of ooh I'm so tempted to go on then. A real quick one. Another quick one. Sorry, it sort of follows on from okay. that. I was, and I would say, lucky enough to be brought up a Roman Catholic. And when I was at university doing almost exactly the same things, I had one great benefit, and that was a very wise chaplain whom I could go to talk to face-to-face in confession.
1: Mm.
0: And that mm. administered the love of God to me mm. in a realistic situation. Yeah. And my question is... Have we lost that in the church? Yeah. Yeah. Is the confession that we have in church on a Sunday morning often just words or very private and therefore there's no mediation with another human being to help us? I think you're you're hitting on something really important here. Um, And it's right at the heart of what maintains or can bust shame. Shame is such a problem amongst the people that I see as clients and I think amongst people who I don't see as clients and that notion of being um, it's in James I think isn't it where confess your sins one to another it's face to face that we're talking about so that we can experience that we aren't shameful we, we can be sinful and admit to our sins but we can still be welcomed received, known, loved we're not going to be Um, regarded as that nasty strange defective thing in the corner there we're actually going to in the face of the anxiety of admitting our our sin and our wrongdoing we're going to experience acceptance and that is very powerful, yeah I think you're right Okay, we're going to need to finish there thank you very much